Well, I am so excited to be speaking on the book of Daniel. It's a book that has been on my heart for a long time, and I'm really excited to be speaking about it. Uh, I wonder how you look at the book of Daniel. Uh, perhaps you've never heard of the book of Daniel before, and that's okay. We're going to dive right in in, in a moment. Uh, perhaps uh, when you think of the book of Daniel, you think of fairly traumatic Sunday school classes or things getting quite, quite weird and apocalyptic. I recently saw a review in the Times for a West End revival of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And it said uh, that the play was uh, great fun, but complete nonsense. Now, they are all ways of potentially looking at the book of Daniel. But then there's another way, and that is to view the book of Daniel as a highly sophisticated manual on how you and I can live in exile today. Now, you may be thinking, uh, Jamie, why are you talking about exile? It was, it was just less than a year ago that here at HTC we had a look at the book of Haggai and what it means that sort of coming out of the pandemic, emerging from exile, and what it means to, to rebuild the church today. But in another sense, we are still in exile. The idea of, of exile, Pastor uh, John Mark Comer from Portland in the US, he, he picks this up in his new book, Live No Lies, and he writes this. Walter Brueggemann defined exile as the experience of knowing that one is an alien, and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. The Christian research organization, research organization Barna Group called our cultural moment Digital Babylon, and Babylon being where Daniel and his friends are taken to. And he writes, in a pre-digital world, to experience the cognitive dissonance now, I know what you're thinking, cognitive dissonance. They are two very, very big words to use. What is cognitive dissonance? Well, cognitive dissonance is, is holding two uh, op opposing views, contradictory views, in your mind at the same time. So uh, take, for example, you've been invited to a drinks party, and you go along to the drinks party, uh, you have a drink in your hand, it looks like a drinks party, it feels like a drinks party. But then when you're at the drinks party, you're thinking, no, this isn't a drinks party. This is a work event. Now, that is cognitive dissonance. Uh, but we're not here to talk about number 10. We're here to talk about Babylon, two, two very different things. So uh, in a pre-digital world, to experience the cognitive dissonance of exile, you had to attend a far-left university or live in the urban core of a secular city like Portland or LA or London or Berlin. Now all you need is an iPhone and Wi-Fi. And he says to followers of Jesus, we're all in Babylon now. And Babylon is not an easy place to live. It doesn't feel like home, hence the moniker of exile. It's terrifying at times, even traumatic. We feel a dislocation and disequilibrium, an uncertainty over the future. Every day can feel like war on our souls, a spiritual assault on our faith, a fight just to stay saved, or at least to stay orthodox, to stay faithful to Jesus and to stay sane, much less to stay happy and at peace. When you're a cognitive minority under con constant pressure to assimilate, you can't help but think, am I crazy to believe what I believe, to live how I live? Welcome to Babylon. Are you sitting uncomfortably? Or perhaps if you are sitting comfortably, then this is the wake-up call that you need. What does the book of Daniel have to teach us about living in this kind of exile? Well, let's take a closer look 
verse 1 of chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So this is highly traumatic and defensive taking that which is most sacred and, and making it captive to the pagan. And so what we see is that Babylon is, is not just a physical place, but it's an archetype. Right through the Bible, whether it's, it's Babel in Genesis uh, through to what we see of Babylon in the book of Revelation, we see that Babylon symbolizes opposition to God, rebellion towards God, our pride, that 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 which rages within each and every person. Verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from, from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, and handsome and good-looking. Nothing has changed. Showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So the kind of people that would perform well at a job interview, the kind of people that would very quickly be put on that, that leadership acceleration program. And he was to, to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And you and me, just like Daniel, we too are being schooled in the ways of the world. Being schooled even to, to serve other gods. I wonder, could the church be the great place of unlearning? We see in verse 7 that these young men are given new names. They're given new identities. When you think of uh, car adverts that you watch, that maybe you see on billboards in the newspaper, um, they're, very, they're particularly revealing about what the myths of a society are, what, what our idols are in society, those, those things that absorb our heart and our imagination, that, that give us purpose and meaning and worth in life. Do you relate to, to any of these? In the 1980s, car ads sold aspiration and wealth. In the 1990s, it was freedom and adventure. After the 2008 financial crash, it was safety and protection. That's one for the Volvo drivers. And then uh, more recently, the car ads, they often seem to revolve around identity and self-determination. But there isn't anything new under the sun, whether it's in 2022 or in the sixth century before Christ. In Babylon, even your identity is up for grabs. And Daniel, he, he gets this assault on his very identity, his very being from the king. Make no mistake, you and I, we also have an enemy who has a very deliberate, a very cunning strategy to undermine our identity as a child of God. He tried it with Daniel. He even tried it with Jesus. What makes you think that you're the odd one out? where your, your, your center of gravity is, is only as strong and as volatile as your family, your career, your net worth, your popularity, your sexuality, or your politics. 
And so you no longer live by grace. And you're at the mercy of a merciless culture with its cancel cancer and its ever-shifting morality dislocated from your core reality of being loved by God, of being loved by your heavenly Father. We read in verse 8, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. But Daniel resolved himself. Free will, ladies and gentlemen. You and I, we really do get to choose how we live. Life isn't just something that happens toward us, but you and I, we get to choose. We get to decide. And we see this in chapter three as well. We see young men in verse 16 and 18 saying, we will never, we will never do this. Why? Because they've resolved ahead of time here in chapter one. And that's why I've called this message Resolve and Resilience. Because it's a, it's a test of resolve. It's a test of, of stamina, of resilience, of living by our choices. To not dance to the beat of the drum of Babylon, but to dance to the rhythm of grace. And what do we see amidst, amidst all the dislocation here in chapter one? It will, even in chapter one, we see embers of hope. Have a look in, in verse 15. Daniel and his friends, they, they look healthier than those who, who ate the royal food. In verse 17, uh, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. In verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And when we read a little bit further, we see that uh, this doesn't mean that everything in life is going to be easy. But even in, we see from verse 9 that, that God, he shows a special favor. He shows a special blessing for those who resolve, for those who choose to go his way. Now, this is a, a, a clarion call to us in Clapham. Uh, people of, of all ages, we are all called to be resolved and resilient followers of Jesus. But we also have a very specific need here in Clapham too. Because when you think of the, the key demographic in Clapham, it's, it's actually the youngest place to live in the country. The highest proportion of people living in their 20s in the UK is right here in Clapham. And what might being followers of Jesus, of, of resolve and resilience, look like? for people in their 20s. Well, Barna, that same research group I was talking about before, they did a study and produced this report a little over two years ago on 18 to 29-year-olds in the US. And they saw that there were four different types of people living in exile. So firstly, we see prodigals, prodigals or, or ex-Christians who do not identify themselves as Christian despite having attended a Protestant or Catholic church as a child or teen or having considered themselves to be Christian at some time. And that's 22%. And then you have habitual churchgoers who describe themselves as Christian and have attended church at least once in the past month, yet they do not have foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with being an intentional and engaged disciple. That's 38% of people. 
And then you've got nomads or lapsed Christians who identify themselves as Christian but have not attended church during the past month. The vast majority of nomads haven't been involved with a faith community for six months or more, 30%. And then you have resilient disciples. Now, resilient disciples are Christians who, uh, one, attend church at least monthly. And personally, I think they need to get a slightly stronger definition of resilient. And they also engage with their church more than just attending worship services. They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. They're committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And they also express desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. Now, these four uh, groups of people, all with similar church backgrounds, they report noticeably different experiences and perceptions of life, faith, and relationships. And just the 10% are resilient, just 10%. But revival history shows us that 10% is all you need. 10% is the remnant that you need to, to change society. But the problem being is that more realistically, this 10% figure is actually 10% of a 1% of the entire population. And that is one of the, the many reasons that we desperately need revival. We desperately need, need God to come in power, to, to turn the tide of church decline. And this is not just uh, numerically, but it's also spiritually. I was really struck by what uh, Tim Stanley wrote. Tim Stanley is the, the, the journalist uh, for The Telegraph. He himself is a Roman Catholic. And this is what he wrote recently about the Church of England, a church that I hasten to add that I love, that I've devoted the past 10 years of my life to. This, this is what uh, he, he sees about a church being desperate uh, to be relevant. He writes, every concession to what it thinks the world wants of it is instantly met by a new demand. The internal debate one suspects is what some Anglicans live for. There is no terminus except institutional death, the point at which the church has accompanied society so far without question that rather than trying to change us, it has become just as confused, materialistic, secular, and scared as the general population. But as easy as it is to point the finger at an institution... This begins with you and me. It is only as true institutionally as much as, as it is true individually. And so my question to you and me is, have we accompanied society so far that we have become just as confused, materialistic, secular, and scared as the general population? Have we settled for less? Have we accompanied the world without question, and have we accepted the world changing us rather than remembering that it's always supposed to be the other way around? When you're desperate to be relevant, or you're just afraid of rocking the boat, it's impossible to be resolved and to be resilient. Barna also reported that, that here in the UK, they reported in 2018 that non-believers don't really care about the church. They don't really care what the church is doing because they don't believe that the church is making a positive impact in the world. And this is what happens to a church that's lost its nerve and a church that's lost its verve, that forms Christianity in its own image, neat and tidy and secure. 
It's why we've seen out of the pandemic seemingly strong Christians who've been journeying with Jesus for decades. They're losing their faith because they've lost their resolve. They've lost their intentionality about their faith, about meeting with others, no longer transforming the world, but conforming to the world, being uh, formed, being discipled by other ways, simply stepping away. Happened to me on the weekend, just bumping into someone who, who would normally go to church and just asking, are you going to church at the moment? Where are you going to church at the moment? Not particularly going to church anywhere at the moment. And, and, and a slightly sloppy attendance at church one minute. Well, who knows what next? This, this stuff happens one day at a time, losing our focus, losing our resolve, forgetting to, to keep the main thing, the main thing. And this, this stuff, it gets into you. It gets into you so, so easily, so deeply in digital Babylon. I, I have a tendency first thing in the morning when I wake up is to, to reach for my phone and to go straight to the news, or perhaps more recently, going straight to Wordle. But what I've been trying to do the past couple of weeks is to, instead of uh, going to the news first, instead of going to Wordle first, is going to the Word of God first. And I found using the, the app uh, Glorify on my, phone, on my phone so helpful to just get into my system first, the Word of God, to, to spend time with God, to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to me and to, to, to let the words of God inform all the other words that I will read during the day and not the other way around. Just like Daniel, you, you want to be informed. You want to be aware of what's going on around you. But don't let those things dictate and, and fill your mind. First, let your mind, let your heart be filled with God and let him inform the reality that you see around you. Because whether the, the news on any given day is good news or bad news, the gospel is always good news. The gospel is, is always relevant because we all need saving from ourselves. We need saving from our pride. We need saving from Babylon. Even more impressive than Daniel was Jesus, faithful and without fault, the only fully faithful Israelite who refused to defile himself, and he fed himself not with the food that the world would offer him, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Jesus, he was not accepted. He was without honor in his hometown. And just like Daniel, he was chucked out of Jerusalem. But not only was he thrown out of Jerusalem, but he was impaled to a cross outside Jerusalem. With Jesus' mission, he didn't wait to see whether on any particular given day he felt like it. No, he, he was resolved and he was resilient amidst the most unbearable opposition. And this means, because of what Jesus has, has done for us on the cross, that no matter how far we've drifted away, no matter how far we're drifting through life, change is possible for you and me just by accepting Jesus' finished work for us on the cross. Very, very practically, what are some takeaways what are some, some key things that we can learn from, from Daniel chapter one about how we can be resolved and be resilient? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is it's not so much a call to be like Daniel. It's actually more of a, of a warning 
A warning not to be like the Babylonians. Don't put God in a box. Don't put God in a box like the Babylonians did and put him under the gods of our age. Just one treasure in the, in the palace of your life. You know, ransacking the, the, the treasures and the benefits of Christianity, but without Christ. The, the kingdom without the king. That's what Babylon wants to do. That's what our pride wants to do. That's what the world wants to do. But Jesus comes into our life as Savior, and he comes into our life as Lord. And so that means, that means tearing down your idols. But it also means, when I say don't put God in a box, it also means don't constrain and restrict what you expect God to do in and through your life this year. Expect great things. And don't put God in a box. Secondly, resolve. Resolve not to defile yourself. Don't manage sin. Don't accommodate sin. Don't struggle with sin. No, be ruthless with sin. Avoid the gray areas at all costs. Resolve to live for Jesus Christ without compromise. So don't put God in a box Resolve not to defile yourself. And thirdly, soak your identity in being a child of God. Even though Daniel, he's given a new uh, name, Belshazzar, we continue to know him as Daniel. Daniel, he is not reactive, but he is proactive. His identity in, informs everything that he does. His habits, his choices, his commitments. And with these three things, you and I, we can, we can actually draw on a deeper power. How much more than Daniel can, can you and I be followers of Jesus, people of, of resolve and resilience because of the resurrection? The same power that, that raised Jesus from the grave lives in you and me. And the Holy Spirit can give you everything you need to be a, a, a disciple of resolve and of resilience, the, the ability to, to will and to act according to his good purposes. It's always been the way. Patrick Whitworth, who happens to be my, my father-in-law, he wrote this in his book, Prepare for Exile. Down the years of church history, men and women of exile provided the change that was necessary to uphold truth to defy powerful systems, to challenge human-made philosophies, and declare the gospel message in its essential form against the accretions of the church and to espouse a spirituality that was capable of reforming or, if necessary, discarding worn-out and corrupt rituals that so easily take root. The thread from the history of the church over the past 1,500 years is that exile is often the price of renewal and of substantive change. My question to you is this. Could this be a moment of renewal and of substantive change?